over the last nine months or so, um, as like kind of almost odd as this is, we've had a number of new uh, folks join our church. And so if, if that's you and you, you don't maybe know Joe, who is just up here, uh, let me give you a quick uh, introduction to who Joe is. Uh, Joe is, has been our missions pastor here for uh, a number of years now. Joe is really, really strong. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like, if we had some sort of uh, weightlifting competition on our staff, I think Joe would win. I'm pretty certain. Uh, he's actually in the middle of a CrossFit competition, like, not like right now, but over the course of this week. Um, Joe really, really loves his family, um, both his immediate family, his wife Rochelle, his boys. Uh, his extended family. It's always fun to hear Joe talk about his family and what's going on, to see him interact with them in the way that it is that he loves them. Joe is super loyal. Uh, one of like the great joys of working with Joe is that as Joe and I got to know one another a little bit better and our friendship started to grow, uh, I started to see the ways that Joe is like fiercely loyal to our church and this family, but also to just me, um, which has been a real joy of mine and is something that uh, I'm sure will continue when he and his family move overseas, but is something that I'll miss like getting to interact with on a daily basis. Joe's passionate about people. He loves people. When Joe does ministry, there's always a name attached. It's not like a nameless and a faceless thing. Joe loves the word of God, which you can even see as he stands up here. He longs to understand God's word fully and to help others understand God's word fully. Joe has a heart for the nations, longing to see every tribe, nation, and tongue come to know the gospel and the saving message of Jesus Christ. And above all of that, Joe really loves Jesus. With all of his heart, with all of who he is, loves Jesus, wants to follow Jesus in everything. I love that about him. And you're sitting there saying to yourself, why is Tim giving us such a lengthy introduction to who Joe is? Because Luke is gonna introduce us to Jesus this morning. And no matter how glowing of an introduction you could give for any human being that's ever lived, the introduction to Jesus is the greatest introduction to the greatest human being in all of human history. Sorry, Joe, you're wonderful wherever you are right now. But this introduction to Jesus paints this unbelievable picture in just a few sentences at the very beginning of the book of Luke about the fullness of who Jesus is. Is. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We won't actually meet Jesus like in person until chapter two. But Luke literally tells you everything you need to know about who he is in the middle of chapter one. Luke gives us that introduction by giving us a peek into the conversation that Mary had with Gabriel regarding the coming birth of Jesus. Remember, if you were here last week or you listened to us, uh, watched online or listened to the podcast, the opening section of Luke from chapter one to uh, chapter four, verse 13 is back and forth. John the Baptist, Jesus. John the Baptist, Jesus. So we already saw the introduction, if you will, to who John the Baptist is going to be when Gabriel talked to 
uh, Zechariah. Now we're going to see the introduction of who Jesus will be as Jesus talks with Mary, or as Gabriel talks with Mary. But there's a point to all of this, and it's a point that we shouldn't miss. And that point is that John is great, but Jesus is greater, and God is in control. If you would, open up your Bible, if you've already got it open there, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 26, and uh, we're going to go down to verse 38 this morning. So if you've got it in front of you, you can follow along with me. It says this, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to introduce ourselves to the fullness of who Jesus is, kind of at Jesus' irreducible core. Who is this man? And we're going to do so by also keeping John the Baptist in view, because that's what we're supposed to be doing. Here's John the Baptist, now here's Jesus. And John is great, but Jesus is greater, and God is in control of this whole deal. And then I want us to take a look at Mary. Mary, who has this sense of peace, that overwhelms her in the middle of what would be almost an unthinkable set of circumstances. And the point this morning is this, that the fullness of Jesus gives wholeness to his people. The fullness of Jesus gives wholeness to his people. The goal this morning is to not make this harder than it needs to be. The point of a sermon is worship. That, that's why when we gather together, we open up God's word together. Not just so we can pack our minds full of information, but so that we collectively would open up God's word and see the way it is that he has revealed himself to us and point our hearts to the gospel that we might worship. Not just in song at the end of our service, but that our lives would be lives of worship. That's, that's why we do this together on Sunday mornings. And sometimes in a sermon, you take the words and the phrases and, and you want to see how they all kind of link together and you do some like difficult sort of linguistic kind of things in order to help draw out the point. And other times you just lay the text out before yourself and you kind of let the glories stack up. That's what we're going to do this morning. Just let the glories of Jesus pile up. And I pray that those glories would lead us to worship. I pray that those glories which lead us to worship would also lead our hearts toward grace-empowered transformation and a peace that surpasses all understanding. That is the goal this morning. So if you don't mind, let me introduce you to Jesus via the words of Luke. 
I'm going to give you seven things here that Luke tells us about Jesus as Gabriel talks to Mary. So this is the fullness of Jesus here. That's what we're going to see. Look at verse 26 and 27. There's a little bit of historical information that starts this out. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Nazareth is the city. Galilee would be like the region. So that'd be similar to saying that Gabriel was sent to Liberty in the Midwest or maybe Liberty in Missouri. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph, who's of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Luke's going to do this, particularly in this first section, a number of times, which is he gives you a bunch of historical data. Remember, Luke wants his people to be certain of the things that they've heard about Jesus. And so he works very hard to anchor the truth of Jesus in actual history. And so over and over, you're going to see him do this. He does it there in verses 26 and 27. He does it at the start of chapter 2. He does it again at the start of chapter 3. The intent that we would have some certainty about what it is that we've heard about Jesus, what it is that Theophilus, the original recipient of this, has been taught about Jesus. And then, starting in verse 28, Luke launches in to some explanation of who this Jesus is. He's fully human. That's number one. You will give birth to a son. There are no shortcuts within the humanity of Jesus. He's going to be born as a baby, and for Mary, that comes with everything that would be associated with having a baby, minus the very first part. But everything else that comes with carrying a baby for nine months and giving birth to that child. And for Jesus, there will be no shortcuts. He's going to be born into all that accompanies humanity in a broken world. The confines and limits of a human body, a human mind that has to learn, human emotions, human fatigue, human bodily functions, human processes. For Mary and Joseph as parents, raising Jesus is going to entail all that comes with raising a human child. Long nights, diapers, wobbly first steps, toddler years, spit up. Middle school, middle school, puberty, all of it. And for Jesus, it's going to mean all the temptations that accompany being human in a broken world. Hebrews tells us that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. There were no shortcuts. He lived sinlessly despite being fully human. When we worship Jesus, we don't worship someone who kind of knows what it's like to be human. We worship the one who joyfully became one of us and thus intimately and completely knows all of the challenges of living as a human being in a fallen world. He is fully human. And being fully human, we see the intimacy of God, of Jesus with humanity. He knows intimately what it's like to walk in human skin.
He's fully human, but he's not just fully human. He's also fully divine. Luke says in two different places. In one spot, he will be son of the most high. And then he says in another spot, he will be son of God. Those are the words of Gabriel. He's fully divine. There are hundreds of New Testament claims to the divinity of Jesus. Here are two of them before Jesus is even born. He's going to be the son of Mary. He's going to be the son of Mary and Joseph. Those will be his parents. But he is also going to be the son of God. Colossians tells us that in this man Jesus, quote, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For some of us, it's easier to think of Jesus as human. For others, it's easy for us to think of Jesus as God. But to understand him as he truly is, we have to understand that he is fully both. Fully human, fully divine. He's not 50% of both. He's not 50% human and 50% divine. That would mean that he leaves back part of his humanity and part of his divinity. That's not how it works. He's 100% of both. It's not that he's two separate beings inside one body, like inside of him are two separate circles, one circle that's fully human and one circle that's fully divine, and in any given moment, he chooses which one he wants to tap into. That's not how it works either. His nature is one nature that's fully human and fully divine. It's not that he kind of took the best of human nature and the best of the divine nature and smashed them into something new. That's not how it works. He's completely both. I say all of that in order to say this. Thinking about the nature of Jesus ought to stretch our minds and fill them with wonder. Like, I don't want to make this harder than it needs to be. Jesus is fully human and he's fully divine. Everything you think about when you think of God, as long as you're thinking biblically and accurately, is present in Jesus. And everything that you know and experience as a human being is present in Jesus. He's fully human and he's fully divine. That's who Jesus is. That's who Gabriel introduces to Mary. Jesus, the son, has been fully God from all of eternity. He became fully man when he came to earth, but he didn't stop being fully God. We opened up here singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the second verse of that says this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. When we sing those Christmas songs, they've got incredible theology inside of them. Jesus is fully human and he's fully divine. Now, let's just take a step back and compare with John the Baptist because that's what we're supposed to be doing here. John the Baptist is fully human, but the comparisons end there. The rest is a contrast. He is not fully God. He's born and he's gonna have to grow in the same way that Jesus is going to have to grow, but there is no divine nature inside John the Baptist. That's one of the contrasts that we're supposed to see, that Jesus is not only fully human, he's also fully divine, and he's fully king. Look at verse 33, actually the end 
of verse 32. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Jesus stepped off the throne to come to earth, but he will absolutely step back on to it. This baby that's going to be born in nine months is king. Israel's been waiting for the one who would sit on David's throne, and here he is. He will reign over the house of Jacob. He will sit on the throne of David. And all of the images that the Israelites had of what this coming king would look like are going to fall comically short. They would picture probably a literal throne room in a palace somewhere, probably with like a nice red seat cushion and a big gold back or something like that. And the image would be regal, but it'd be wrong. That's because this is the heir to the throne of David. This is the king who's going to reign forever. He's not going to be confined to ruling during his lifetime from a throne room in a palace somewhere. He's going to reign eternally. Look, thank John the Baptist again. John the Baptist is going to make it very clear. He has no delusions that he is the king. In fact, he's going to say later on in his own life and in his own ministry that he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. Jesus is king, and John says, I'm not even worthy of being the servant that would untie the king's sandals. John is great. He's the forerunner to the Messiah, but Jesus is greater. He's a fully human, fully divine king who is fully eternal. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. This isn't King Cyrus in Persia. This is not Herod in Judea. It's not Caesar in Rome. This is not even David or Solomon in Israel. This is King Jesus. And he is fully eternal. His kingdom will be eternal. No beginning, no end. He has sat on the throne from time eternal beginning. And he will sit on the throne through time eternal future. Right? This is like Sandlot. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There's no end to that. There was no beginning to that. He's just always been there and he will always be there. His kingdom will have no limits. No limits on time, no limits on space, no borders, no boundaries. His kingdom will outlast all the other kingdoms. And that means at some point, all the other kingdoms will be brought into his kingdom. That's been the promise since Genesis. That's the commission that Jesus gave the disciples. All the kingdoms are going to come. And when you get to the very end in the book of Revelation, there's a moment where all the peoples of the earth bring the glories of their kingdoms into the presence of Jesus. Fully eternal. Fully human. Fully divine. Fully king fully eternal. John, not eternal. By Luke 9, 9, Herod says that he's beheaded John. You get the full account of that story in Matthew 14. John will die. He will be all the way dead and he will stay all the way dead. Jesus is fully eternal. He will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end and he is fully pure. Gabriel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One 
to be born will be called the Son of God. John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We were told that in the passage where Gabriel talked to Zechariah. Jesus, on the other hand, is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Holy, in a biblical sense, means other. Like when we think of holy, we just think of like sinless. But holy actually means other, like completely different. Jesus is going to be fully pure. He's going to be holy. He's going to be something completely different. And yet, he's also fully human. All right, so you see the intimacy that Jesus has with humanity, but you also see the immensity of Jesus. He's fully divine. He's completely other. He's eternal. I mean, these are things that we can't even cram into our own minds. He's completely different because he's entirely pure. Even the best of our motives are stained by the presence of sin. Deep down at the very core, odds are the most altruistic, the kindest thing you've ever done had at least some tinge of something that was actually about yourself. It would shock and horrify us to know the full depth to which sin stains the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we talk, the way that we live. We have some measure of the knowledge of that, and the longer we walk with Jesus, the more and more of it we see, but its true depth is something that we will never completely know, which means that to live without it, to live with no trace of sin anywhere inside of us is completely foreign. Jesus is holy. He is other. He is fully pure, the holy one, completely separate from sin, completely devoted to the honor and the glory of God. There's nothing in him that even for one moment in all of eternity has ever deviated from that. Brokenness is not the operating system in his person and in his existence as it is in ours. He's fully pure. He is the holy one, entirely other. This child to be born will be fully human, fully divine, fully king, fully eternal, fully pure, and fully sufficient. Gabriel tells Mary, you will name him Jesus. When Joseph hears that, as recorded in the book of Matthew, we're actually told what that means. When Mary heard the name that we read, Jesus, when she actually heard that spoken, she would have heard the name Yeshua, Joshua, which means Jesus saves. Joseph is told, you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He's fully sufficient eternal, divine, human, king, and completely sufficient to save humanity from sin. And what is it that's going to make him fully sufficient? All the other stuff. It's all the other stuff that makes him sufficient. It's the fact that he's holy, completely separated from sin. It's the fact that he is eternal, and the sacrifice of himself that he makes is one that can last for all of time fact that he's divine, the fact that he's human and could stand as our substitute. It isn't that he might be able to save or that he'll have the possibility to save or that he'll have the capability. If he wanted to, he could save. It's that he will save his people from their sin because he is fully sufficient. He's capable. 
He's able, he's willing, he's sufficient. Gabriel says, Mary, you're having a son, not just any son, you're having a remarkable son who is going to be able to save his people. He's not going to save them politically or militaristically or nationally, but he's going to save them spiritually and he is going to save them eternally. Six items there. Fully human, fully divine, fully king, fully eternal, fully pure, fully sufficient. And that means that he is fully worthy. Completely worthy of our worship. He will be great. Now, Gabriel also told Zechariah that John would be great. But John understands that he's not worthy of worship. John understands that he points to the one who is. I mean, you read this whole account and then you circle back around and you see that Gabriel tells Mary that this son will be great and it's like almost worth a chuckle. Like if we understand exactly who Jesus is, then obviously he's going to be great. Like I said, it's the greatest introduction to the greatest human being in all of human history. And in this Advent season, I pray that we would see and cherish and worship the fullness of Jesus. You remember the first time you watched a high-definition television? Like, you had been watching something on a TV that was probably, like, deeper than it was wide. And things looked pretty clear, And then you saw HD for the very first time and you were like, that guy was wearing a watch. Did you see that? I could see the time on the watch. Like, what have I been missing my whole life? Right, that's the kind of clarity with which we need to see Jesus. The actual Jesus in all of his fullness, in all of his majesty, in all of his wonder, in all of his beauty. Not some cultural image of Jesus, Not something that like we've put together that's like the sentimental picture of Jesus, but actual Jesus. Oh, that we would go from whatever low def is to high definition. And we would see Jesus clearly. I pray that God gives us that kind of clarity. That in this Advent season, that clarity would do something in us, would do something to us. Fully human, fully divine, fully king, fully eternal, fully pure, fully sufficient, fully worthy. I'm gonna read something to you. It's gonna take a couple minutes. This is gonna be a lengthy quote. This is a portion of a sermon by a man named S.M. Lockridge. He was a pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California. And he introduced Jesus to his people. This is the way he did it. He said, the Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. 
No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful, and impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He is God's son. He is a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He is awesome. He is unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He is the only one qualified to be all-sufficient Savior. And I wonder, do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick, cleanses the lepers, forgives the sinners, discharges debtors, delivers captives, defends the feeble, blesses the young, serves the unfortunate, regards the aged, rewards the diligent, beautifies the meek. And I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness, the highway of holiness. He is the gateway of glory. Well, his office is manifold and his promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's inconceivable. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Witnesses couldn't get their testimonies about him to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Do you know him? Like actually know him. In all of his beauty, and in all of his glory, and in all of his goodness, and all of his grace. Because if you do, there's something that will mark your life. Look at Mary in this. The fullness of Jesus gives wholeness to his people. Gabriel is sent to this town called Nazareth, The angel came to her, verse 28, and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was deeply troubled by this statement and wondered what kind of greeting this could be. Then Gabriel gives her this unbelievable introduction to who her child is going to be. Look at verse 38. I'm the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. The biblical idea of peace is wholeness or completeness. Like Joe said, peace isn't about a set of circumstances. It's not about a lack of tension or a lack of discomfort. It's not about a lack of battle or war or fighting. Peace is about completeness. 
when you come to an understanding of who Jesus is and you place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, by God's grace, you get what we'll call theological holiness, our wholeness. You're given peace with God. What was broken between humanity and God due to the presence of sin is made whole again inside of you. The wrath of God justly due to you because of the presence of sin has fallen on Christ. Christ's full purity has fallen on us. We are reconciled to God and thus we have peace with him. That can be yours right now. In this Advent season, the fullness of Jesus can give you wholeness with God. Advent, which means coming for you in this season could be more than just kind of wistfully thinking about Jesus' birth. It could be the real celebration of the coming of Jesus into your life, bringing with it peace, wholeness with God. If that's already happened to you, then there are a couple of ways that you can respond to that theological wholeness. But if that has not happened to you, the primary response to seeing the fullness of who Jesus is is faith a belief in who he is. Placing all of the weight of your soul upon the goodness and the holiness of Jesus. Understanding your sin and his righteousness. And trusting only in that righteousness to be the thing that could make you right or whole with God. If you've not ever done that, you could do that today. If you have already done that, then let me give you two ways to respond. First, in worship. Jesus is fully worthy. We respond to this peace that we have with God by living lives that cling tightly to grace and we offer him the praise that is rightly due his, which is all of the praise. But second, we seek to live in a sort of experiential wholeness. And here's what I mean by that. To actually live in peace. Yes, we have it theologically, but actually live out of it. Not require seeing the fullness of Jesus as being that which we ultimately seek. Last week, we talked about pain. We talked about longing. I want to bring that back this week. Most often, the deepest places of pain or longing in our lives come because, thinking, or come because we think that we lack something. There's something in our lives that we desire. There's something that we want. There's something that was taken from us. And we feel like we lack. And we allow ourselves to think that in lacking, we're somehow incomplete. Author Henry now and gives a list of like five incorrect ways that we could like to hold our identity. Three of them are, I am what I have. I am what I do or I am what others think of me. Well, if I don't have, then I must not be complete. It'd be hard to have peace. If I am what I do and then I don't do, I must be incomplete. If I am what others think of me and someone thinks something negative, then I must lack. There would be no peace. We could run this 
uh, illustration into a hundred different areas in your life, in the person's life that's sitting next to you. I'll just bring back the one that I brought up from Melody, Melody's in my life last week. Melody and I long to have children. It's particularly poignant around Christmas. In fact, every year, I think we both kind of silently think to ourselves, next year, like next Christmas, when we get out the decorations, next Christmas when we're buying presents, we'll, we'll buy presents for our own kids. Like, it won't just be for nieces or nephews who we love dearly. But like, next Christmas, it'll be for our own kids. And like, while we watch people celebrate, it's hard to not feel like we lack. Like, in some way, we're incomplete or we're not whole because we don't have kids. But the truth of Jesus is not just that when we received Jesus, we got some kind of just theological, intellectual, 30,000 feet up there wholeness with God. When we got Jesus, we also got wholeness because Jesus has given us everything that we need to be complete. And that means everything. And so when the diagnosis comes and what you thought was like whole health is ripped away from you, you're not incomplete. When life goes off the rails and you lose the job or the economy turns south and the bank account or the 401k dries up, you're not incomplete all of a sudden. It doesn't mean that there might not be a feeling of of lack or like something's missing in your life. But it means that at the truest and the deepest level of who you are, if you have Jesus, you don't lack. You are complete. You are whole in everything that you could ever deeply long for you can find in him and it is available to you and it's held out to you and he desperately wants to give it to you it doesn't mean there's not pain but it means there can still be peace because you're not incomplete you're not less than whole and you can cling to the one who is full in every single way. Whatever it is you feel like you lack this morning, health, career, family, money, possessions, status, relationship, that thing, if given to you right now, will not bring you the thing or the peace that you think it will unless you first recognize that the fullness of Jesus is ultimately what gives you wholeness. Think about Mary. She did not sign up for peace here. Finding out this news based on her setting meant her husband could kill her. It meant the society would probably write her off. Unplanned pregnancy is hard in 2020. Unplanned pregnancy in AD zero. Any pregnancy at that time had a high chance of death. She was going to have a baby 
in the middle of a road trip. And it's not a road trip in a comfortable car with Spotify and an aux cable. That's a road trip on the back of a donkey through a desert. No peace in that. Unless you understand that peace doesn't come from your circumstances. May it be done to me according to your word. Why? Because the fullness of Jesus has given me wholeness. Peace in our lives means being able to say, may it be done to me according to your will. And knowing that whatever that will is, if you've got the fullness of Jesus in the middle of it, then you don't lack. You're whole and complete. And there's peace. My prayer for us as a church this Advent season, despite the difficulty of what 2020 has been, is that we would understand that wholeness and completeness is in Jesus and 2020 could take a lot away from us, but it can't take that, which means it cannot take our peace. It cannot take our wholeness. It cannot take our completeness. Amen? Our king is a full king who's fully worthy of all of our praise. Let's pray together and then we'll close in song. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the opportunity to come and to just worship the king. Lord, I pray you would stir our, within our hearts a deep affection for Jesus in all of his fullness. God, thank you for sending us a savior who's entirely human, entirely divine, who is entirely king for all of eternity, who's fully sufficient and fully worthy and fully pure and holy. God, would we find our wholeness in him and in him alone? When we seek peace, would we turn our eyes first to Jesus, not to our circumstances? When we think we lack, would we be reminded that we are whole and complete because of Christ? We pray this in his matchless name. Amen. Stand up, let's sing together.